Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're revisiting a really important series called The Invisible War. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 to 19, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. For those of us who have never been on a battlefield, I think it's hard to imagine. Life and death, courage and fear, the roar of battle, the cry from men's throats, the agony of men dying, and the reality of both victory and of defeat, misery and mastery, horror and examples of love and courage. I mean, we've all heard the stories, but it, it must be another matter entirely to actually experience the field of battle. I do know this. All those who have experienced battle, well, they're not hawks, they're not warmongers. They've experienced something that has transformed their perspective. You know, all of us who read the Bible know the depiction of battle. Abram gathering his 318-man militia, mounting a daring and brilliant night raid against four victorious kings in order to rescue his nephew Lot. Moses standing on top of a hill, arms raised up to God with the staff of God in one hand as Israel battled with Amalek in the valley below. Joshua meeting on the field of battle against five kings, kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. What a day of warfare so that the Lord himself intervened and caused the sun to stand still in the sky so that daylight would not end until Joshua had destroyed his enemies. But we also remember the horror of defeat. We remember unfaithful King Zedekiah realizing that Jerusalem was lost, attempting to escape at night through a breach in the city walls. The Babylonian army follows now in full pursuit, and they overtake him and slaughter his sons before his eyes. As savage and as horrifying as warfare is, no one can deny that it changes things. For anyone who says wars don't change anything, I put it to you, they don't know history. Wars change the flow of human history. That's why there are so many of them. Kings and presidents and prime ministers and the world's mighty men, all of them know that to win in battle greatly favors their nation and their causes. That's why men fight so hard, and that's why we allow so much blood to be spilt. That's why carnage continues. The rewards of victory in the eyes of a great many is just too large to ignore. The cost in terms of savagery is just a price that warriors pay in order for the reward to follow. Well, this is a two-week series, and it's a series on war. It's a series on strategy, and it's a series on savagery. It's not a nice series, but it's a real one. But rather than just depicting one battle or one war in history, this series is about the greatest battle of all history and the longest-running war that the world will ever know. It's about a battle that began when our first parents fell into sin, resulting in the introduction of death to the entire human race. And this battle still goes on today. This battle is the deadliest battle in human history, and it has more at stake than any other battle. That's why it's fought so hard. But here's the wrinkle. This battle is being fought in invisible places. Yeah, that does mean we can't see it, at least not with our physical eyes. And if you've been trained only to believe what you can see, you're going to have trouble with this, but hang on with me. I'm going to help you to see what you can't see with your eyes. But please make no mistake. 
Just because we can't see the war doesn't mean we don't experience it. This is the most bloody and savage and merciless battle in human history. So then where do we start in our account of this battle, this invisible war? I've chosen to begin with an account that comes to us from 2 Kings chapter 6. So let's begin our story by reading verses 8 to 10. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. Well, now let's put all of that in context. The king of Israel at that time was a man named Jehoram. He reigned over Israel for 12 years. He's an interesting man because he constantly wavers between faithfulness to God and at other times, well, he was completely faithless. He's the kind of man whom James would later call unstable in all his ways. And an unstable king is a weak king. And Ben-Hadad, who was the king of Syria at the time, was anything but weak. But he could smell out weakness, and he would use that to his advantage. And so he's constantly engaged in warfare with Israel, his southern neighbor. Now, in spite of Jehoram's lack of faith, God often intervened on his behalf and on behalf of his people Israel. And this is where the prophet Elisha comes in. He would, on behalf of the God of Israel, advise King Jehoram with words of warning, letting him know where the Syrian army was located. It's kind of like having a GPS signal tracking the Syrian army. That was a tremendous advantage. So let's continue to read verses 11 and 12. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in the bedroom. Now, all of this is a setup for the drama that's going to follow. If you were King Ben-Hadad of Syria, what would be your next move? Remember, he's a strong leader and he doesn't take defeat or setback lying down. So what does he do? He takes out a contract on the prophet Elisha. Now, admittedly, that might be hard to do because this Elijah seems to know what the king of Syria is saying in his bedroom, but it is worth a shot. After all, Ben-Hadad has plenty of resources, and if his commanders keep trying, well, they might get lucky. And with that, the prophet Elisha becomes a hunted man. Ah, the drama's heating up. So let's keep reading verses 13 to 15. And he, that is King Ben-Hadad, said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Indeed, it seems Elisha has been caught. The city will have just a few options. Resist and risk being burned to the ground and slaughtered, or seize the prophet of God, Elisha, and hand him over to the Syrians. Now, as I've said, this two-week series is about warfare, brutality, savagery, the lives of countless men and women caught up in conflict. But as I've also said, this is a series about a spiritual warfare, a great unseen war that, that Paul would say is going on in the heavenly realms. 
You know, in Ephesians 6 verse 12, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It is this reality that is often missed, especially today, so many, even among Christians, who can't imagine a world other than the one we interact with that is through our five senses. But the Apostle Paul peels back the curtain and informs us about rulers and authorities and powers. I mean, we have to assume that he's speaking about a a dark kingdom with levels of government, with officers of that kingdom, with genuine plans for battle. Great forces are aligned for battle at this present moment. That's what our Bible teaches. It seems, therefore, almost inconceivable that Christians who believe the Word of God should not be instructed in this spiritual reality. But if there are rulers of a great wicked kingdom, and if they're engaged in war, well, then war means that they have an opposition. And this is the reality. A great war is being waged in the heavenly realms, a battle that greatly impacts the human race. That's the subject of this one-week study. But let's just, so we finish up, get back to the prophet Elisha. Remember, he's trapped in the city of Dothan, and the Syrian army is surrounding the city and looking for him, and Elisha's servant is utterly terrified by what he sees. So, let's keep reading. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 16-18. to 18. He, that is, Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And then after that, after the great unseen army of God struck the Syrian army with blindness, every Syrian man was blind. Elisha then led that completely blind army straight to the king of Israel in order to be captured and humiliated. See, Elisha saw what we must also see. There is a great unseen army that stands ready to do war. So much more to talk about. Would you like to receive all of the latest Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, Bible teaching and encouragement resources directly to your inbox every Monday to Friday? Then be sure to sign up for the free daily audio mail. Every day you'll receive an email containing links to all the daily Bible teaching programs, newest blogs, and all the audio and video messages from Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, and In Doubt. Once you sign up, all the newest from Dr. John and Phil will be one click away. So to subscribe for audio mail, visit backtothebible.ca, and at the bottom of the page, you'll find a simple sign-up form. Now all your favorite resources will be sent to you every weekday. Or if you prefer, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 and we'll make sure you receive the next Back to the Bible Canada audio mail. I want to change your worldview. I want to open your eyes to see a world that you've heard about, but a world that most Christians tend to ignore. It's a world of angels and demons and warfare. 
Some of you might remember Daniel chapter 10. Daniel has been seeing visions of God and he's appalled by the gravity of what he sees. Nations rise and fall and great many nations determine that they will destroy the people of God. At one point, Daniel becomes so exhausted by the visions that he falls asleep. And then he's awakened by an angel and the angel's words, especially for those of us who have no worldview of the unseen world, well, it seems surprising. I'm reading Daniel chapter 10, verses 10 to 13. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words." The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Do you wonder what this is about? Well, Daniel's praying and receives no answer, at least for some time. Indeed, an angel has been sent to speak with him, but the angel himself doesn't show up for 21 days. And that's because he's engaged, I assume, in a great warfare with the prince of Persia. And the angel would still be there at the battle if reinforcements had not been sent, freeing this angel to complete his assignment with Daniel. Does that seem bizarre to you? Isn't God all-powerful? I mean, why does he need angels? And yet angels there are. Do you remember Jacob running for his life after he's deceived his brother and stolen his brother's blessing? He ends up in a place called Bethel and he falls asleep. And Genesis 28, verse 12 says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, that word translated as ladder is perhaps best translated as a staircase. Jacob saw stairs leading into heaven, and he saw angels, some coming down on the stairs, having just received an assignment from the throne room of heaven, and others ascending the steps, having completed their assignments, and then returning back to give an account. Again, some of us are left with wonderment. I mean, where do these angels receive their assignments to carry out on earth? I mean, what's going on? Let's do a little Bible study, one that you might never have done before. We're going to start with Psalm 89, verses 6 and 7. It says, For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? Did you pay attention? There are a host of heavenly beings, says verse 6, and then, according to verse 7, God is greatly feared, for he is unlike the counsel of the holy ones that surround him. What? There's a counsel of holy ones in heaven? I mean, why does God need a counsel? Well, let me muddy the waters even a little further by really assailing your ideas of how God sovereignly chooses to govern this world. I'm reading the text, and it's 1 Kings 22, verses 19 to 21. It says, And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he will go and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. Now, it's going to take too much to explain the background of that scripture. 
But for our purposes, pay attention to only one thing. There is surrounding the throne of God a great host who come before the Lord with ideas on how to conduct the great battle in the heavenly realms. And in this case, the battle is felt as King Ahab is enticed to go into a foolish battle, and in the process, he'll be killed. God's purposes are fulfilled in the death of that wicked king. But the whole series of events began in the council of heaven, as one angel after another came forward with ideas as to what to do. Again, we must ask ourselves, I mean, doesn't God know what to do? Well, yes, he does. But he, in his infinite wisdom, has decided to engage his holy ones, his great war council, to enter into wisdom into the plans of God. And this is why Daniel 7 verse 9 says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Well, isn't there only one throne? Well, no. There's only one glorious throne, but the throne is surrounded by other thrones, holy ones taking their seats, seats designated for them. And if you haven't noticed, that's exactly the image that we find in Revelation chapter 4. Verse 24 speaks of 24 thrones surrounding the great throne and the altogether splendid one who sits on that one. But here we need to add another reality. See, Isaiah 14 verse 13 says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Now, as is the case in so many of the passages that we'll consider, there's so much to be said and so much to be examined. But it seems to me that the Mount of Assembly, well, it seems like a special place where where the leaders of the angels gather and they bring counsel to God in both his plans and in his rule. These are God's generals among the angels. And we also know that there is an evil one among them who once sought to be above all the counsel of the holy ones, who once sought to be supreme over them all. And 1 John 5, verse 19 says, We know that we are from God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, how did that come about? Well, we know that this came about as Satan deceived our first parents and led their children into the realm of the evil one, a realm characterized by Well, murder and lies and deception and ultimately death. Human beings didn't conceive a rebellion against God. That was planted into their minds by Satan himself. We need to be careful here. It is so important for us to notice non-Christians are not all the servants of Satan. That's just patently untrue. It is true, however, to notice that Satan does have his servants among the children of men. But the vast majority of the human race are not Satan's servants. They're Satan's victims. Ephesians 2 verse 2 says they follow the prince of the power of the air, but they do so because they've been deceived. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 3 to 4 says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they cannot see the glory of the gospel of Jesus. But Jesus promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell, that is, the stronghold of Satan, would not be able to prevent him from doing so. Jesus promised that right in the heart of Satan's kingdom, in that place where he confuses and blinds and lies and murders and kills, right there, a church of the living Savior would be built in order to steal his victims from his throne and bring them safely into the kingdom of light. 
And since that's true, it seems to me that we should think that the church, that believers in the church, are at the heart of a great spiritual warfare. We have to assume a dark kingdom with rulers and authorities and a a chain of command as a part of this present darkness in which we live. We must also assume the counsel of the Lord our God and the host of his holy ones that surround his throne. And we must assume the image of Revelation 17 of a great prostitute who leads the kings of this earth astray with the wine of her sexual immorality and her heart of blasphemy against the Lord our God. We have to imagine her being drunk on the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. We have to imagine a false prophet who inspires the worship of the state and a worship of the kingdoms of men. We have to imagine world rulers who think they're gods. We have to imagine philosophies and thought systems meant to confuse the people of this world. We have to imagine the captives of the evil one. When Paul said that we struggle not against flesh and blood, this seems wrong to some of us. I mean, things like abortion, the wanton killing of unborn children. Isn't that a part of government policies made by men? Aren't the philosophies of sexual immorality so rampant in our world taught by professors and by politicians? Isn't our struggle with government and philosophers? But Paul insists our great struggle is not with flesh and blood. Rather, we are locked in a great cosmic struggle. There are God-hating spiritual beings who seek to deceive the whole world and ultimately to kill the entire human race and so defame the glory of God. And so for two weeks, I'm going to explain this world. Let's do a Bible study so that we might understand the great fight in which we are engaged. John, as I think about this series, I'm thinking there's some people that just constantly talk about their spiritual warfare. They're obsessed almost about it. But then there's also people that completely discount the whole idea. Yeah, and as we go through this series, uh, Ben, that's what I'm going to say, that um, there is a balance that we need to strike in all of this. I mean, that's not to deny what's going on. I will say in the future that, you know, it's never the call of God's people, you know, to be rebuking the devil constantly. We're not told to do that in the Bible. We're rather called to pray to God and to seek to be faithful, to be filled with the Spirit, all that kind of stuff. But we're not to be ignorant of the designs of the evil one either. So somewhere we need to find that balance, and I'm going to try to lead us there through this series. Well, I'm looking forward to this entire series. So remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue The Invisible War right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Every year, Back to the Bible Canada releases an annual scripture reading calendar. This is our most requested Bible resource. Well, the time has come to request your 2023 scripture calendar today with the theme, Freedom in Christ. Each month contains beautiful, thoughtfully selected images, inspirational Bible verses, encouraging quotes from Dr. John Newfeld, and a Bible reading plan that will help you read through the entire Bible in one year. We pray this calendar will inspire, keep you in the Word every day, and remind you of just how blessed we are to live freely in Christ. So for the month of October, request your copy of Freedom in Christ. But hurry, quantities are limited. To request your free copy, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.com. 
www.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca